Infirmary Media. Start. People engage in stuff for dueling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Poop culture, popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Banner Ballet and Sick Iron Maiden GNR. Come fight for what you love. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and for this week experience duel, I'll be going back to the 70s as I duel with 1979 alongside these men. First off, dueling with the final week of July, 1982, Say hello to Man Crush. What's up? That's right. I got July 25th through the 31st, 1982. I changed my shirt once again since I'm on a three-game losing streak. <laughs> and I'm not even going to tell you what's on it because I'll probably have to change it again next week. But I'm good. Let's go. Also returning to the panel this week in dueling with the final week of July 1997 is renowned voice actor Bobby Craft. Ah, that's right. It's great to be back and uh, good to be representing just shy of what would be my 10th birthday in 1997. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's celebrity guest judge is the actor, writer, producer, you know and love from classics like The Fox and the Hound, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, Adventures in Babysitting, and Toy Soldiers. All rise and welcome Judge Keith Coogan. We should went further down my Twitter profile because it gets better. <laughs> it gets into like zombie hunter, squirrel enthusiast, medic, wet nurse, all of that. And then tour guide. And one of those is true. So I was a little concerned with the wet nurse, yes. to be honest. Just, now, you don't understand how many medical accounts followed me after I did that. <laughs> nurse med x nurse med fast nurses it, it was just it was it was unbelievable so there's definitely some bots out there looking at that stuff what we really need to know is that is that pure cane yeah, sugar in the drink that you have right there this is a beautiful um what we like to call a real sugar coke Ooh, man he's gonna be he's gonna be all coked up <laughs> look at him chugging away that's a half liter that's not the <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. All right, duelers, it's time to sit back, relax, and drink peppermint schnapps out of a scope bottle like it's 1991. Because it's time to play more. Dueling decades. <laughs> and talk on the sex hotline. <laughs> all right, so let's go right down to our guest judge, Keith Coogan. For the coin toss. Okay. You know what? This week, we'll toss it between uh, Man Crush and Bo Beecraft. Oh, what an honor. I'm going to let Bo call it because I called it last time and I lost. Actually, I won the flip, but I lost the game. So I'm trying to change things up here. I'm going to let Bo go. Okay. Well, here's for the loss. Okay, Bo. So I got this new copy. 
of the vinyl. Oh, yes. Come on, Racers Dead soundtrack. Uh, Mama Celeste Fantastic. face up uh, and Mama Celeste face down. Which, uh, which would you like? <laughs> I think the only valid answer here is getting her face down, so I'm going to go with that. Wow, that took a turn. Right, we're going face down. Oh, and oh, hold on, it's split. Hold on, oh. hold on. We have to get... Unfortunately, Mama Celeste landed face up. All right, man crush. That means you take control of the board and get to select our first category. All right, let's go to uh, let's do hot products. Something that everybody enjoys. We'll start off there with uh, July 29th, nineteen eighty-two. I was kind of torn on this one because initially I was going to pick the Tron arcade game, but the dates just weren't lining up for me. That would have been an amazing pick, considering that the arcade game closed to fifty million dollars in nineteen eighty-three, which is more than the movie did. But I couldn't find the right date. It wasn't nailing down. So I kept digging and I found something. And when you're digging through newspapers, and I know Mark and Bo know exactly what I mean, it just doesn't say just released on things. Like, you got to, like, dig, dig, dig. However, I got lucky this time. I actually found something from Stans in Shreveport, Louisiana. So thank you very much. Much appreciated. They put it in black and white, just released. So here's a game that I owned for the Atari 2600 as a kid, and I loved it. I did have a problem breaking joysticks with this game, though, and I remember that all too well. I did have two joysticks for my 2600 and the paddle, that bullshit paddle thing, and I recall breaking both joysticks and trying to play this game with the paddle. It was impossible. It was a miserable experience. So one of my first chores as a child was my mom used to make me dust the house. And if I dusted the entire house, I got five bucks. So I could buy new shit, like a new joystick or whatever. But she would go through the house afterwards with a white glove to make sure that I did it. And if I if I didn't, I have to do it all over again. But I guess it's the pl- the price that you pay to play video games. But anyways, this is the Parker Brothers games, the same guys that make the board games, and it's the first released Star Wars game to come to the market since that day. There have been over eighty Star Wars games produced for various systems. But this one is The Empire Strikes Back for the Atari 2600. At the time, the graphics blew me away. Uh, you can actually see the Imperial Walkers. They kind of look like turtles, maybe, with, like, baboon arms. But it was close. Like, you knew what it was. The gameplay was fast. It was simplistic. And honestly, aside from the data graphics, I can actually see kids today playing this game if it was an app. Because it was super fun. It reminds me of one of those cell phone games that the kids play today. But uh, the game, it was pretty damn hard. You need to shoot the Imperial Walkers 48 times. Wow. And I'm not making that number up. That's legitimate. You had to shoot them 48 times each to blow them up. But uh, this is the Star Wars video game, Empire Strikes Back. It all began right here with the release of that game on July 29th, 1982. All right. Bo Beecraft, what do you have for the Hot Products round? Well, gentlemen, you know I love me a good hot products round, uh, and unfortunately, 1997 didn't yield too many results like it normally does, so I'm going to go with this. The San Pedro News Pilot in California uh, boasted multiple classified ads for the luxurious Chrysler LeBaron. Fresh trade-ins <laughs> offered customers their choice of either a 1990 LeBaron loaded for a mere $49.95 from Best Buy Motors or... The option of a 94 convertible model at Boulevard Buick for only eighty nine ninety eight. There you go. That's it. Hot product. Not in 1997, but a, a previous throwback to 1994, the Chrysler LeBaron used models for sale. I don't see sale. one LeBaron. Don't see two LeBarons, Freddie. 
<laughs> I'm the number one son. <laughs> All right. So for my hot product, I went over to the Hanford Sentinel from Hanford, California, July 30th, 1979. I had the final week of July, 1979. You know, it's California in the summer. It's hot out. And for hot products, I wanted something that kind of resonated with that. And I think I found the perfect one because I remember this toy from my youth. I found an advertisement from Floretta's Toys and Hobbies. Floretta's introduces two new toys. Willy Waterbug, only $11.95 from Whammo. It's cool, splashing, fun. Now, if you guys remember this, it was a giant yellow bug. You'd hook your hose up into its butt, and then it had, like, little pieces of hose for hair, and it would whip around and spray water absolutely everywhere. I remember this thing. It was cool and freaky. So that's what I got. It's a brand new toy that just came out, Willy Waterbug. It was actually only eleven ninety five. That's a pretty good deal. In nineteen seventy nine? Yeah. That's like five hundred dollars today. Well, if you go online, these things are collectors' items now, and they sell for a hell of a lot more than that. I don't know why people yeah. still collect these, but I don't know. They're pretty cool. It had a it was a yellow bug wearing a blue baseball cap and a little polka dotted vest. And then he had like plastic dreadlock hair that was hoses and then it would whip around and spray water all over the place so a big hit at acid parties it was man it was good <laughs> good times for all <laughs> all right so that's our hot products let's toss it down to our celebrity guest judge keith coogan for the verdict for the hot products round so we'll go uh we'll go backwards everyone loves a good lawn toy a slip and slide uh the noodle i remember the noodley guy Lawn darts were my favorite. Um, absolutely. Yes. Hell yeah. Uh, instant trepanacea. Um, but, uh, that, mm, I also, I, Chrysler, I know my grandmother who was an Earl Carroll girl. So she was a dancer in Hollywood in the thirties or so. Um, she had a, a convertible white Chrysler LeBaron, uh, with, with uh, with a license plate topless. Because it's convertible, <laughs> so uh, I, Chrysler's great. However, I have classy to give car, it out classy to license plate. The uh, greatest anything revolving around the original Atari Twenty Six Hundred, especially tied to Star Wars. You got me there. That's going to be my short and curly right there. Is Star Wars? Um, I do remember the game. <laughs> I don't remember going nuts over it coming out or the release. I think I eventually bought every single title you could get on it on Atari Twenty Six Hundred. I think I had uh, Microvision which was a handheld LCD screen that you would take the whole face off mm -hmm. and replace it with different cartridges. Like I was a video game obsessed, would go over to a friend's house to play in television. Nobody owned both at the same time. So my vote goes towards <laughs> right, Empire Strikes right. Back on the uh, Atari 2600. And thank you. And remember at that time, and I, I think I've started picking up the games too, because it was right after the whole E.T. thing. E.T. bombed out. And all those games plummeted. And I remember going to this place called Lloyd's and the games were like three ninety nine a piece. <laughs> and, you know, like every week I can get a new game. We got hip to developers. By that time, we knew that Kitchen, Gary Kitchen had left Atari and had established Activision. And we knew any Activision title was just gold. There were some other kind of cool games. They made some like dystopian stuff and UFO stuff that was all very Defender-like. But, um... So there were some other cool eh, branch off, not Atari, that got away with it. So it depended on, I was just savvy of who made the game. 
because yes, trusting a movie license after that was not easy. And also, you have to understand <laughs> the video games. If you fire up your multiple arcade, uh, 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 what's MAME stand for? Multiple arcade machine uh, emulation. Um, if you fire up MAME and look at titles from '82, you will you will say anything that you're only playing Atari 2600 for the gameplay and using a lot of your imagination for the rest of it. Um, the in you know Donkey Kong had already come out and. And by then, we could see the difference between home versions and what the arcade versions were. And so I think at that point, the original Vetrex or Laser Star Wars had come out, where you're driving the original Star Wars yep. you know, arcade, which was amazing. And so there was no point in trying to get a Star Wars game at home on the 2600, because you knew it wasn't going <laughs> to equal like an arcade experience. That may have been why I didn't run out and grab it. Absolutely. It was fun though. It was a fun game, and I won that round. So fuck it. Let's uh, <laughs> let's move on. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go music. So let's uh, begin with July 30th, 1982. And I haven't gotten to pick a decent soundtrack in a while. I th- I can't even remember the last one that I picked. So when I saw this album that was listed, I jumped on it. It's definitely a great soundtrack. And that being said, when you're talking about 80s movies, I'd say this particular movie right here is. Mount Rushmore worthy 80s flick. If you look at it, if I'm building a Mount Rushmore, I'm going to have like Adventures of Babysitting, Hiding Out, That's Cheetah, easy. and then Fast Times Richmond High. <laughs> but, but for real, this movie, it defines the early 80s and the soundtrack's no different. The, uh, the album would actually peak at number 54 on the Billboard 200, which is pretty solid for a soundtrack. And it's really good for a soundtrack in 1982 because most of the movies I was watching in the eighties, at least that early in the eighties, they had music that was like a step above like seventies porn music. You know, you certainly didn't have anything as cool as Jackson Brown's somebody's baby, which was a single that was released from this soundtrack that climbed all the way to number seven on the billboard hot 100. Then you had Sammy Hagar, the go-go's Don Henley, Oingo Boingo, Billy Squire. And then they even added like some classical stuff to this. You had Donna summer, you had Joe Walsh, Stevie Nicks, Jimmy Buffett, they really had a bunch of everything on this. And I know people at home, they're going to message us and say, well, in the movie, you know, I heard the cars, I heard Tom Petty, I heard Led Zeppelin. Unfortunately, those were not on the soundtrack. I just wanted to be 100% clear on that. They're not on the soundtrack. However, we do get the greatest soundtrack guy of the 80s. This should win the round on its own. The man behind Meet Me Halfway, Danger Zone, Footloose, and I'm All Right. He wrote a song on this soundtrack, the legend, the legendary Kenny Loggins. He wrote this, the track Never Surrender. What a gig that guy had. He's like the soundtrack maestro. But uh, once again, this is the soundtrack for Fast Times at Richmond High. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> it was on the Mount Rushmore, As soon as you man. said they had to hold off a Zeppelin, I knew exactly which movie you were talking about. <laughs> I, it had to be a money thing. I'm sure that's a rights and money thing. Did you know in Adventures in Babysitting, we're driving into Lower Wacker Drive to go to Dawson's Garage and a cue comes on and it's the beginning of Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. It's just the guitar intro. And Daryl goes, this is weird. And, and the babysitter says, you're weird. And we have a nice laugh. And then it fades out just before Mick Jagger's vocals come in. Uh, Touchstone Pictures and Disney paid more for the rights for the first 16 bars of Gimme Shelter than me and Anthony Rapp salary combined. And they had to cut it off before Mick started singing because it would have been even more expensive to use 
the music if they use mixed vocals. Wow. So the rumor was 50 grand to That's use insane. the beginning of Gimme Shelter without mixed vocals. And I am in the wrong business. <laughs> now you got to go back to the early wow. 60s and start a rock band. And, eh, it's a whole deal. Exactly. Yeah. One day. One day. I got a pretty free weekend. That's a pretty good uh, pick right there. That's going to be tough right there. One of my one of my favorite films. All right, Bo Beecraft, what do you have for the music round? I found in doing all my research for this particular episode that it, it, it always works out this way. It's always the week before or the week after the week you have that has all the good uh. stuff. Um, so my music pick is going to be kind of self-indulgent. It's uh, July 29, 1997, the arrival of the second studio album from old country band Whiskey Town, which uh, is fronted by Mr. Ryan Adams, who am I uh, a big fan of. Uh, Stranger's Almanac. It's It's got more of a, an interesting story behind it than the actual album success itself. Uh, just plagued with, with issues throughout the whole recording process, including the uh, departures and, and contemplative departures from the core members of the group. But uh, ultimately, it finally kind of reached the retail shelves. There were two sessions that uh, produced what would come to be known as, you know, Stranger's Almanac as it is today. 36 songs recorded between those two sessions, which is just ridiculous, prolific, to say the least. Uh, 13 made the final track listing. Uh, but the band ultimately broke up September of that year during a pretty tumultuous show down the road from me in Kansas they City. They just recorded 46 tracks in the studio. They're going to tear your apart. Everyone's had enough. They're exhausted. Uh, but yeah, it, this would actually be the pretty much, they, the band didn't put out very many albums and this was definitely their final one. But since then, it's kind of become a, an alt country staple, uh, kind of a cult classic. It was actually reissued as a deluxe edition, bonus tracks, all the additional stuff uh, in March of 2008. Uh, so like I said, this is a bit of a personal preference pick for me. Not a whole lot going on that week in 1997, but uh, my pick is uh, Stranger's Almanac from Whiskey Town. The weak experience. <laughs> Very weak experience in 1997. It happens, man. You get what you get. I know. All right. So for my music selection, this is the sixth studio album by this band. Now, if you listen to the show a couple episodes back, I actually picked their seventh studio album as my music selection. And it's actually an album that I have here in the uh, podcast New York Southern Campus Studios up on my wall. It's a satellite. Released July 27th, 1979. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Highway to Hell from ACDC. Just one of the pinnacle albums of rock and roll. The final album with the late great Bon Scott. Uh, singles off of this one. Highway to Hell. Girls Got Rhythm. Touch Too Much. Now, Girls Got Rhythm. Much like the other ACDC album and the Bad Company album. These are technically heavy metal, hard rock bands. There are album cuts on these albums that you would find in any dance club or bar in the 70s and 80s, man. For metal songs, you can get down and boogie to these songs. And I think that's where mainstream America really grabbed onto it. You go to any pool hall, man, and Highway to Hell is there. It's always on. Everyone plays that song. The story behind this is they were actually going to be paired up with South African-born Eddie Kramer, best known for producing Jimi Hendrix, Zeppelin, Kiss. He was all over the place with them. Actually wanted them to cover Give Me Some Lovin' and I'm a Man by the Spencer Davis Group. ACDC wasn't having it. They brought in another producer, Mr. Robert John Mutt Lang, one of the most legendary producers of all time. 
worked with the band, kind of re- reformed and re-sculpted what ACDC would become. And unfortunately, it was Bon Scott's final album. Uh, but yeah, Highway to Hell, released July 27th, 1979. Just an all-time classic. How do you keep getting these, man? I think it was like <laughs> it's two rigged. episodes yeah. ago. I had Back Come in on. Black, and now I got Highway to Hell. It's, 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 I couldn't believe it. If you listen to the show, we say it all the time. All of the dates on the show, completely picked at random. So you, we get what we get. Wow. Every time I got the 70s, I get disco. <laughs> yeah, and I ended up I end up with I hate, I hate you. Yeah, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's see what our judge Keith Coogan has to say. He might hate ACDC. I don't know. Re- well, respect to Whiskey Town and uh, Alt Country, absolutely. And, I, I mean, the uh, soundtrack to uh, Fast Times, um, you know, just, uh, I mean, it's tremendous and, and how it's used in the film and how it, you know, speaks to how Cameron Crowe has used music in his film since then. Um, and then we've got, we've got Highway to Hell. So now, okay, it's a tough one. I, I uh, the, the ACDC is a good, it's a good band. If it was if it was back in black, <laughs> it would have been my choice. Having lost my virginity to back in black, so I. But it wasn't. You're, that was the you know seventh album. We're talking about six. And Highway to Hell's great, but it doesn't have that connotation to me personally that back in black does. So I'm going to go with the soundtrack to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Final answer. Wow. Uh, tough, Good man. call. Tough. All right. Good call. Are you going to like? Elaborate on the uh, the losing your virginity story to uh, to back and back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then keep your secrets. Let's just say her parents walked in on her. <laughs> oh, uh, not a good scene. That's the worst. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, shit. Where do I go from here? Last single point round. Ah, uh, what's stronger? I'm gonna go. Let's go movies. Let's finish it up with uh, single point rounds of movies here. Let's go July 30th, 1982. And I had a few movies to choose from here. One of them was a huge movie that came out, but it was a, it's a movie that I just cannot bring myself to watch. And that's uh, an huh. officer and a gentleman. So I didn't, I did not select it. Uh, instead, I decided to select something that I found to be a good movie. And uh, here's the second major motion picture that this Oscar award winning director released. I'd actually consider this his first major motion picture since he starred in his directorial debut. And that that's like cheating, right? Like you're directing yourself. I mean, you're an actor. What do you think? This all entirely depends on who you're talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about Ron Howard. Oh, he directed himself in Blacktop uh, Fever or something like that. Yeah, something like that. It was like in yeah, and that was under the think, purview uh, of New World and Roger Corman. Famous words are, you know, you really do need at least three days to make a good picture. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, look, that that's pretty amazing. Ron Howard, heck, what a director, right? All right, so we'll let's move okay. on to what the movie is here. See okay. if you can guess what it is. <laughs> but this comedy it would go on. It would make twenty one million dollars at the box office, which is roughly fifty six million dollars in 2020 which is not too shabby the cast is great though we got mark's favorite cheers hottie you got shelly long you got michael keaton and what's probably the movie that put him night on shift. the map all the way night shift. for movies he yeah, yeah night shift. you know where i'm going again uh with michael keaton he was pretty much at this point was known for television 
So this is really his first like big movie movie. Then like uh, you were just saying he had Henry or Henry Winkler was in this. Although after the Rhonda Shear episode that killed my entire image of Henry Winkler. Yeah. So I, I just, I just see him like not in a good light now. I don't know. Like just a bad story. She was, if you're lost on that one, go back and listen to the Rhonda Shear episode. She tells this incredible story about Henry Winkler. It'll change worlds, man. Yeah, it's uh, but I mean he's in this, and then uh, also you had Richard Belzer, Clint Howard, and then you had a couple big names really in a couple of their first roles, very early roles: uh, Shannon Doherty, Vincent Schiavelli, and then the amazing Kevin Costner who plays Frat Boy Number One, which is pretty awesome. Just like you said, this is the movie Night Shift from 1982. If you've never seen it, Richard Belzer kills a pimp of all people. <laughs> Richard Belzer. <laughs> Is the muscle actually not really? He's like the boss of the muscle and like gets the guy to toss out the window. Then you got uh Chuck and Bill who work. Is it a mortuary? It's or no, it's not mortuary. Uh, oh, no, morgue. a uh, overnight uh, morgue. Mortuary. It's a morgue. Yeah, they work in the city morgue. And you got like uh Michael Keaton who's basically like his own entrepreneur stealing the car to do like weird trips and shit like that. It's a he's fun a movie. Artist. Check it out. He's always oh, a total bullshit artist, but he's a good one. He's the idea guy. He comes up with the whole thing to start the, the idea the guy. <laughs> he's the idea guy. And then at the end of the movie, he's dressed like Tarzan. This was made at a time when uh, movies thought that uh, prostitution was a great subject matter. Uh, like uh, Arthur or uh, what were the other ones at that time? Risky business. Angel. Thank you very much. Trading places. Um, it was just fascinating how, oh, and, uh, of course the, uh, creme de la creme, Dr. Detroit starring Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> That's another great, this is, you know, great comedy gold, even bachelor party touched on prostitution. Um, why was this so anyway, moving on. <laughs> and you got, you got Shelly long cooking breakfast in her panties, which is pretty decent for that movie. Uh, but it was rated R, so check that out. It's 1982, so I'm sure you're going to get good stuff there. And that's July 30th, 1982. It's Ron Howard's Night Shift. All right, Bo Beecraft, what does 1997 have for the movies round? I just remember being absolutely petrified by this movie when it came out. August 1st, 1997, the cinematic arrival of Spawn, the on-screen adaptation of the popular comic book series from creator Todd McFarlane, uh, not to be confused with the guy who created Family Guy. Michael Jai White in the title role, uh, one of the first films actually to feature an African-American actor portraying a major comic book superhero. So it is uh, notable for that. Uh, depicts the origin story of the title character, also starring John, Le uh, John Leguizamo, who is the most horrifying character in this entire film uh, to look at and just uh, think about and have nightmares about. Grossed $87.9 million worldwide after a budget of 40 to $45 million. So I, I would guess that's a decent haul. I'm sure Keith could speak to that more aptly than I could. Oh, yeah. Everyone always forgets this. What does um, the movie theater do with half the money? Spend it on prostitutes, I'm guessing. No, the movie <laughs> theater chain. So a box office number is the entire gross. But remember, movie theaters keep about half of the tickets. Uh -huh. So the studio only made about $42.5 million on that. Oh, that's right. That's excellent. Barely, yeah. I never think about that. No one that. thinks yeah. about you have to think, that. Now, the best deal they've got out there is 60-40, where the studio keeps 60%. And this is an A picture, a Marvel release, where they go, they have a little more leverage on a big picture like that, and they can dictate the entire schedule for the year. 
to a theater saying, you're going to get this for six weeks and you're going to get this, then we're going to give you this. And they have to leave gaps in there. Otherwise it becomes a monopoly. Um, so always cut the box office in half. And then that's the real money the studio is kind of working with. And then take the budget given and triple it because you've got um, the uh, uh, P&R uh, spend, uh, public relations mm -hmm. and advertising. P&A spend is what it's called. And then in the old days, there was a physical manufacturing of thousands of prints right. that needed to be shipped. And that cost was really expensive. Now we can put a couple of master DCPs online and boom, they can be sent out. Um, and so the distribution costs are, are narrowed. Um, and the price hasn't gone up too much. I mean, ticket prices, especially if you're looking at downloading online and now you got a five foot TV. That's basically, I remember going to cineplexes where the screen was about five feet. Um, so it, it, you know, kind of balances up, but so triple the budget and then half the box office. And those are movies that actually did well for a studio that that's made about that. That's that's great insight. I got a question for you. I, I do want to point out, because I'm sure people will throw this out. They love to correct us. I'm sure Keith meant Image Comics, not Marvel Comics. It was Image Comics that put out Spawn. So don't kill Keith. Oh, no, I meant today that Marvel. <laughs> Fucking nerds. Spawn, <laughs> that, that original Spawn was post-Matrix filmmaking made pre-Matrix. So it yeah, had that underworld sure. vibe. It had that kind of just slick night, you know, glossy look plus um uh, a truly evil rendition of mcfarland and had great sell-through on because uh horror and sci-fi and comic fans are the most fetishistic when it comes to movies they will buy right. the hockey mask and the thing and the action figure and the all the props and box sets and all that stuff and i remember spawn being heavily merchandised in 97 oh for sure it's kind of sure. interesting i mean it mostly got critically panned and and surprisingly yeah. enough one of the few positive reviews that that i was able to find was from uh, my favorite review chair roger ebert uh he gave it three and a half out of four stars he said the uh, well the he plot... likes to watch movies he does and he's good <laughs> he at it entertained. he uh he said it was he said the plot was sappy and a uh, little more than a setup for some of the most innovative effects of the era. So much so that Spawn verged on, uh, as you kind of touched on it, a surrealistic art film. And he said, as a visual experience, it's unforgettable. But see, this this kind of contradicts with how I've come to know it. It's almost got cult classic status, uh, it seems like, anymore. Uh, like, it's it's more of a, you know, like one of those hardcore fan favorite films that, you know, critically, yeah, it, it kind of bombed, but it's a fan favorite in some circles, it seems like. Before we go too far, I, I wanted to touch on this because you mentioned it. What's your whole thought process and the whole thing right now with Universal trying to pull out of all the movie theaters? They're not trying to, but doing it and putting all their stuff straight to VOD. You think that's going to be the way of the future or what? Are we going to not go to movie theaters anymore? They just made a deal. Oh, did they? I'm not current. So yesterday on the news I read, that Universal and AMC have struck a deal. They are now narrowing the window of theatrical release exclusivity to 17 days and giving AMC theaters a bit of the profits off of the VOD sales as soon as they become available. So AMC will get it for 17 days. So you got to wait two and a half weeks and then you can buy it on VSOD or whatever. And then there'll be another window where it'll come onto your cable channels and then be on Amazon Prime for free and stuff like that. So they 
they really and, and I don't know if it's temporary or not, but it's kind of like seems like something that audiences were already ready for day and yeah. date releases. As a matter of fact, they were before um, the pandemic, they were talking about day and date. And I know movie theater exhibitors were very nervous about that. Um, but then we showed how something popular on Netflix like Okia could be then distributed in theaters because people wanted to go see it and they would sell out those screenings. Um, there is no normal. Nobody knows how. And I think that the goal is, and this may be because I worked for Sony as a tour guide at the Sony Studio <laughs> Tours in Los Angeles, California, is that Sony um, finds out how an audience wants to see their movie. Um, and that's why they quickly changed the trolls. They were going to go big and be like Mulan and be like Tenet, and they were going to hold fast to a theatrical release. That's how you make your money. And they went, screw it. We're going to make these kids watch this thing for 48 hours straight because we're going to sell this package where the parents can. It's anyway, they were geniuses. They made $100 million on just VOD. That's crazy. I think that's going to change a lot. I mean, yep. it doesn't bother me. I have basically a studio in the basement. You know, I have how I don't even know how big that screen is. It's like 15 feet, yeah. which is big enough. But you you do kind of miss out on the movie experience, I think, if it's going just VOD. So I actually really like that, that they're going to do it for 17 days. Yeah, there is a site. I can't remember. It kind of fell out of trend, but it was where um, the people would propose an event or a movie to be released or shown in a theater. And then people would all come in. And if so many, so many people said they were interested in going, they would book that event and get the license and screen it. And I feel that that could be a way, like really on demand. And you could almost have it reversed where theaters are on demand and um, groups could pull up and you could have private screenings for birthday parties and rerun Jaws or rerun Raiders or something like that. Well, that's what's huge right now. Yeah. yeah. Fire Festival was an attempt to be like Cameo where you could just rent a star or an act and not go through manager or agents, go, what's their cost? 50 grand, boom. And they sail out to an island and they do a show. And Lyft, the fire festival was terrible. And, you know, that that fell apart. <laughs> but Cameo was yeah. working. And Cameo, you know, hosts all the videos and makes it really easy for the celebrities. And the, by the way, visit my Cameo profile. Um, and uh, so there could, I've seen, you know, you've got Kevin Smith and you've got, um, what's the name of the film funding group? Um, that was behind uh, they did the gap financing for um, Jane and Silent Bob reboot Me mega something is it something with an M yeah. I can picture the logo yeah thank you uh, 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 Legion Legion M Legion M Legion M, M yep Legion M so the uh, Universal came up with about 40% um, Saban Entertainment came up with about 40% of the budget and then the um, Legion M did about 20% of the budget to produce the film and that's how um, they were able to afford to get you in it. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so then they, with the roadshow tour where they went, instead of $15 a ticket, which they did for two nights, they showed it nationwide in about 700 theaters in two nights. Then they went on a roadshow, which was 60 cities and, you know, 80 days or something like that where they made and paid back the gap financiers, the Legion M financiers first. And they did it in about three months. And it was wow. the, not only usually gap financing gets left out because the studios, the big dogs kind of take their bites first. Yep. So it was, that was a very interesting. And of course they've, they've now got a slate of, you know, more films that they're making and people can invest in. So it'll be, 
at one point you'll be able to cameo and pick your cast and then submit a script for them and then people can record it and do it, whatever. And it'll be, at some point people will be able to be, um, true art. Uh, yes, that's awesome. Now we can actually make the prequel to over the top. Oh, we could now. That would be amazing. <laughs> Under the hood. Under the hood. Yes, where he's where he's uh, he's arm wrestling in Mexico in an underground circuit, and they pin drug dealing on him, and he goes to jail. Right. Oh man, we can go nuts on this. You get David Mendenhall's character is younger. He's only like five or six, and he gets kidnapped. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sorry to derail your pick, Mark, but it is the movies round, and Keith Coogan knows movies, so I had to ask. Not a problem. All right, guys. So for my movies pick. This franchise all started here with this movie. Released July 27th, 1979. I give you the all-time classic, The Amityville Horror. I mean, this is a franchise that still lives on to this day. There's been several reboots, TV shows, sequels, everything. But this is the original. Of course, it starred James Brolin and Margot Kidder. For me, this is where haunted house movies started. It has that really creepy element. Not everything is explained. They never explain the red room in the basement or why that's there or why demons take on the form of animals. Now, the backstory of this is based in reality, as they say it is based on a true story. You know, there was a, uh, a killing in a home where a child killed his entire family. All right. So, this is what I think had really happened, and it's the greatest scheme ever. This couple bought a house, and they had the biggest case of buyer's remorse ever. And this, like, this, 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 you're right. No one's ever tried this before. The house is possessed. <laughs> We're getting out of this, man. I'm telling you, this is, Amityville Horror is the biggest case of buyer's remorse ever, and it worked and spawned a franchise. Is that is that the whole case with uh, Skinwalker Ranch too? I, I don't know. <laughs> it hopes. might be, but yeah, that that's honestly that's my belief. I don't I don't buy into all the supernatural, spooky stuff. I look practically at things, and I I think it's buyer's remorse in a great story. So that's what I got for movies: the Amityville Horror, the original one, July twenty seventh, nineteen seventy nine. Wow. So let's go down to Keith Coogan for the ruling on the movies round. Those are all incredibly tough picks if i'm pretending like they're all out on one weekend and i can go see one of them and i'm trying to like make my you know um sophie's choice so i um although i appreciate spawn i'm gonna i'm gonna park that for a second we're up against very strong comedy and uh probably definitely and it's one of those things people don't think of when they think of franchise horror amityville horror Spawn, I have to admit, didn't see in the theater. Maybe caught a bit on cable. You know what I mean? I was bad. I'm a bad, bad fan. But I read enough about it to be familiar and go, okay, I'll get to it someday. That's my bag. I did like the Underworld World films, though, I have to tell you that. Anyway, uh, Night Shift. Um, this is, you know, I'm now aware of great comedy like Airplane and um, who uh, Michael Keaton is. And you got uh, Mr. Mom coming up. Uh, probably in the next year or so. Um, but we had Z Channel out in Malibu, you know, like a box with A, B, C, D, and then Z Channel, which is notorious, yep, yes. run by a coke fiend, um, you know, <laughs> guy that would get like the original print of Heaven's Gate and like director's cut of Superman 2, all that cool stuff. 
um, and then air it for you. I, it, uh, and so it would, there would be a gap of a year or two sometimes for movies to catch up. Like by 81, I'm watching Alien, that kind of a thing. So, I, I mean, I love it. It's great. Now, here's where Amityville Horror personally fits into my world. One of my uh, grandfather's showgirl wives was Anne McCormick, and she had uh, a son from a previous marriage, Don Stroud, who played the priest in Amityville oh, Horror. Okay. So my uncle, Gosh. Don Stroud, was in. He's with the flies when they're in the room and the flies right. come all yes. over, and then he yep. gets yes. blinded. Oh, my God, he gets blinded. So... I'm giving it up to Amityville also because that movie scared the crap out of me. The pig, what is it? Jenny, the pig, you know, come on that. But, and not explaining it. Perfect. The Ryan Reynolds ones, we were like, here's the a, here's why it was like poltergeist too. Don't explain it, man. That just ruins it. Now see Amityville horror is really how the money pit should have ended. When the money pit, when they bought that house, they should have taken that route and be like, all right, we're just going to pretend there's ghosts. The money pit is a perfect film. Don't you dare talk about money pit. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Keep that out of your mouth, Mark. Two weeks. That's a running joke with my wife. How long is it going to take? Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> That's everything when you're a homeowner. So I give it a damn or it scared the crap out of me. I loved every sequel. I saw the 3D one. I saw the one with the dollhouse. I, saw, I mean, yep. loved them. They, they really didn't never made a bad one. It knew what it was. Right. And it never, because it had um, just this scary supernatural element. Uh, I don't know. They always kind of, I did, I, I actually did a um, marathon once and watched them all back to back to get the continuity <laughs> between them. And I like the new one. Okay. It's okay. Yeah. What's, what's your thought? What's your, what's your real thought on reboots and, uh, and everything like that? Oh, uh, well, you know why we're seeing a lot of reboots right now? I don't know, because they're trying to make money. <laughs> because nobody has an original idea anymore? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All totally the reasons I had kind of thought until I learned that um, in one of the last Writers Guild contract renegotiations, they talked about intellectual property rights. And one of them is now in contract that after the movie comes out, that if the studio doesn't do anything with that property in 35 years, it reverts back to the writer's intellectual property. Right. So there's a window right now, go backwards 35 years, and gee, why are they remaking Footloose, Ghostbusters? Uh, what was some other ones? Come on. Isn't it, isn't it like Beverly Hills Cop yeah. getting a, sure. a part three? That, that feels uh, about right. They're like the Spider-Mans. Why are we seeing Spider-Mans? Um, origin story over and over and over again because uh, Marvel and Sony had a truncated version of that where they had to make one every two years or three years and they lost the rights. Um, so that's why we're seeing that. That's why we're seeing them look at they read it Adventures of the Babysitting already as a Disney Channel original movie. Uh, they're looking at Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead to be rebooted. I even heard of Toy Soldiers in there with Queen Latifah and an all-girls school. And it's just so that they can renew the intellectual property rights and then hold on to them. So that's why we're seeing this rash of the remakes from these particular years. No shit. That's wild. That's good, good to know. Insight. So now when everybody's bitching in our, uh, in our Facebook group, <laughs> we can tell them this is why deal with it. And of course, Kevin Smith laid out, actually Jason Lee laid out the difference between remake reboot and right. a sequel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> very well. And he's dead on. All right. So I pick up a point in the final one point round heading into the first two point round. All right, I think we're going to go over to hmm, the news round. 
For my news article, I went over to the San Francisco Examiner, July 29th, 1979, and I found an interesting article called Pot Smugglers Take the High Road. <laughs> now, this article goes on to talk about some new uh, methods of smuggling marijuana into the United States, and I, I thought this one was a little creative. Drug runners have found a new way of smuggling their contraband into the United States by firing a rocket. The odds are that marijuana missiles are being taken seriously by the Drug Enforcement Administration and air defense officers. It has been revealed that there were suspicious flights aroused about six years ago when mystery missiles were tracked down over the Mexico-California border. So they have tracked them on radar. They're shipping marijuana over the border in missiles. I don't know if this is the way you want to get high or not. To me, there's a, there's a risk factor here. You might lose some stuff. And missiles have a tendency to blow up. So what, are you just going to aerosolize the whole area? I mean, this is 1979. Today, they just do this with drones. This is, this is like the little rockets you fire off in your backyard. And they're just like tying wait, joints wait. to them. <laughs> what do you think the Battle of Los Angeles was? Is that what it was? Was it marijuana missiles? It must from the ocean. They were just firing <laughs> shit off. Oh, man. There's another movie we can make. God, we can cameo movie these things. They did. 1941 by Spielberg. <laughs> now, the article goes on to say that although the information that they have received was a little sketchy, it was complete enough to show that smuggling may have occurred on the night of the unidentified missile. So the, May the North American Air Defense Command in Colorado has confirmed the mystery tracking. So there was smuggling that went on that night. They know that for a fact, but they're, they're not sure if it was the missile, but it could have been. That completely, here's what I thought right from the get-go. You got two spots on your border. You got point A and you got point B. And point B, you got 20 guys that you're going to get over and you're going to figure it out. And point A, you go, let's distract them with this damn rocket. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> they, like they said, the, the Border Patrol, they're very interested in the rockets. Let's yes. see how interested they are. Fire six of them. Boom, boom, over here. And then run our guys in over here when no one's, when everyone's over there looking at the rocket. Easy, easy. There's no way that's really used. It, it was actually, it was a, it was a weather balloon. That's good, though. Look, we had, I live in L.A., so we've got rafts coming up, Zodiacs. Um, you got tunnels being built, drones. Um, it's, a, it's a mess. And we, you know, I know that there's talk of and people fighting over whether there should be a wall built along the U.S.-Mexico border. We have one in Los Angeles and, or San Diego. And you can still fire rockets over it. <laughs> Those are, they're not rockets. They're weather balloons, bro. <laughs> well, in 1979, there were marijuana missiles. They were launched uh, launched by Grassa. <laughs> they were all aimed at El Pollo Loco establishment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's my news story. Man Crush, that's a good one. over to you. That's a good one. Oh, man. All right. So let's go to July 30th, 1982. And I was fortunate enough to have gotten this story because I don't think many people give it that much credit for its impact in the world of professional wrestling. Bo, you'll like this one. I know you will. You hear a lot of people talk about how Vince McMahon created wrestling entertainment. He coined it. That's his, that's his deal. Many people, they would point at 1985, they point at WrestleMania as the launching point, but that's not really the case. This event right here is what propelled wrestling entertainment. 
And I would venture to say Vince took a, he took notice of this and he went after it. And I'm, I'm sure Vince Jr. was kicking himself because his father actually shot down this idea and this whole thing took place in Memphis, Tennessee instead. And here's the abridged version of these events that happened. So everyone's familiar. Andy Kaufman, he loved professional wrestling. He wanted to be involved with it. At one point, and this is how the story goes, and he, a little background, he was super popular at the time. He was on Taxi, Saturday Night Live, huge star. So as the story goes, he asked Vince Sr., of course, I'm talking about Vince McMahon Sr., to get involved with the WWF in 1982. And Vince said that he didn't think it would work. People would think it's fake. So he said, all right. So he walked out, He walked off. So somehow, Andy Kaufman knew Bill Apter, who worked, or he was a photographer for professional wrestling illustrator at the time, PWI. And he hooked him up with Jerry Lawler down in Memphis, and where Lawler is basically like a wrestling god down there. So Andy calls Jerry up without hesitation. Jerry says, absolutely. I want to work with, I want to work with you. So he comes down fast forward a little bit. Andy Kaufman is working for CWA down there and he's fighting women from the crowd. And then it eventually builds up to a feud with the King. So Jerry Lawler, he ends up pile driving Andy Kaufman. He gets hauled off in an ambulance. Months go by after this, right? Months go by. Andy Kaufman calls Jerry Lawler again. He said, Hey man, you want to come on the late night show with David Letterman to continue our feud? I think the first one was in like April. Now it's July. It's, you know, beginning of July. They're scheduling this Lawler probably didn't even hang up the phone. He just left, flew right up to New York. (laughs) And the two of these guys get on the show together. And I mean, you got a Hollywood star and a professional wrestler in a feud on Letterman. I mean, that alone in 1982, is amazing. But then these guys end up arguing on the show and Lawler decks Kaufman, knocks him over the chair. And then Kaufman drops a bunch of fucks and he calls Lawler a fucking asshole. And then the whole thing, they didn't think they were going to air it, but they ended up airing it that night, throwing a bunch of quacks over the top of all the curse words. And then he tosses coffee on Jerry Lawler. Literally the shot heard around the world at this point makes Lawler a household name. It links Hollywood and wrestling and develops one of the best and most creative storylines in professional wrestling history because this, it didn't just end there. This shit went on for years. I mean, this is the abridged version of the story. If you really want to dig this up, go online. It's fucking fantastic what these two did. So the next time someone asks you when wrestling entertainment really began, if people actually ask that, I don't know fucking if anybody would ask, but if they did, you tell them July 30th, 1982, when Jerry Lawler slapped the shit out of Andy Kaufman on late night with David Letterman, that's when the shit started. I mean, there's so much more to the story and the feud, but I'm going to keep it at that. Oh man. But the feud ran right, like right up to his death. And like, was it like 1984? So we went for like two years. Amazing shit. Amazing shit. But that's what my uh, my pick is for the news right here. All right, Bo Beecraft, over to you. I feel like I got a really bland pick compared to those two. But uh, <laughs> July 27, 1997, uh, pay-per-view welcomes UFC 14 Showdown. Uh, pretty run-of-the-mill event for UFC. But this one is of note because this marked the first occasion in UFC history Uh, and mixed martial arts, for that matter, in which fighters were required to wear padded gloves. Uh, Gloves weighed between four and six ounces, and up until then, 
it was the fighters' option uh, as to whether or not they wanted to wear gloves in, in the octagon. Melton Bowen being the first UFC fighter to choose to wear gloves back uh, 10, 10 pay-per-views before at UFC 4. Uh, so now, modern-day official MMA uniform rules now say uh, fighters must wear commission-approved open-fingered gloves, uh, must weigh no more than six ounces, no less than four. Larger gloves may be worn with approval. Gloves must be supplied by the promoter. MMA fighters cannot supply their own gloves. So uh, this really kind of was one of the first uh, major regulations to be implemented in UFC. And uh, obviously it's, you know, I, I guess for safety, even though UFC is probably one of the less safe sports uh, on the market. But at least they're wearing gloves now, Mom. How many ounces were did you say? Four? They got to be between four and six. No less than four, no more than six. Still kill a guy with that. Yeah. <laughs> like wearing a brick on your hand. I'm going to start requiring that I wear ankle weights when I do uh, mixed martial arts. <laughs> really get some girth behind my kicks. I love that they're like, you can't do this specific move. Maybe, you know, you can't do, but grounding and pounding a guy is fine. Yeah, you can just pummel the yeah. shit out of a guy Sit and beat there him to death. Third grade, oh man. Boom, boom. <laughs> Elbows are cool. You could use your elbow, right. just not your fist. Do you guys remember the first couple where uh, I think it was it was either UFC one or two, it could have been even three, where uh, I think it was Oleg Taktarov who got like either he punched the guy in the nuts yes. like five times. <laughs> I remember that. Yes. It's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> that's dirty. like the unwritten yeah. rule, and, bro. And that's back when when Gracie used to use the gi choke and would take his gi and just wrap it around the opponent's neck yep. and choke him with it. <laughs> it was so much better then. Oh, we should go back. Wow. So this is this is an incredibly tough choice because there's so much legit news going on right here. Um, big respect to firing weed rockets over the border. <laughs> Huge respect to that. Um, and UFC, you know, no one's screwing around. In Friends, when um, Rachel's boyfriend wants to become an ultimate fighting champion, uh, uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's a big joke, but then he's really going to do it. Um, that's when it got, you could get murdered in the ring doing this, forget having your arm pulled out of socket or Wookiee style. Um, (laughs) you know, that's the real deal. And I think that, uh, so, and here's why I'm, I'm kind of, I'm leaning towards Andy Kaufman. Okay. And here's why, because he legitimized both. First of all, people went Andy fighting women. That's not good, but he's, he's wrestling them. I thought everybody called wrestling fake. So we've got a little cognitive dissonance going on for audiences, and this is great. Then we get Lawler, who's obviously a plant. This is all set up. It's genius. It's brilliant. It's theater. You get two people who will never break character. Lawler has interrupted meet and greets, like at the beginning of wrestling matches, and taken them over. Um, He is the king of talking shit before a match. Lawler's also amazing in the ring and on screen. Um, you get uh, Kaufman, who will not break character, will not laugh. And so now you've got this. This is dangerous for Kaufman, right? Because he could get murdered by Jerry Lawler. Well, this takes the whole idea that wrestling is fake. And it puts it way in the back of the mind. The reasonable suspension of disbelief. Oh, hold on one second. Sure. Thank you. Okay. 
Sorry, guys. I was getting more uh, dishes ordered so I can sign "dishes are done, man." Help us out, the family. <laughs> um, you've got you've got it. Legitimizing uh, Kaufman and Lawler. You've got, um, of course, the feud continues. Never is dropped. Kaufman goes to his grave, saying whether this is a bit or not. It, it doesn't matter. Um, and I and that's the beauty of it because acting is a gag, and and so is comedy. So, you know, wrestling. Uh, professional wrestling i don't think people really wanted to they love the show of it and they love the stories of it and the characters of it and it's also something incredibly difficult you could get incredibly hurt trying to do it until you kind of learn the gags um the movie the wrestler helped us learn how hard it is to fake it um and uh so i want to give it to that because anti-comedy i love anti-humor i love shaggy dog stories i love the journey of it and Kaufman's bits were, and this was one of his most elaborate bits. So I'm going to give it to Kaufman on Letterman. Valid. Outstanding. Yeah. I mean, dude, like when I was doing the research of this and I, I literally watched, there was like a 25 part series of everything that they went through for like two years. So I watched all these bits and it just never ended. And I think that's one of the things that we lack today with professional wrestling. It, there's no long game like that. That was he looked at the long game and he went like there was a part where, you know, he goes into a feud with Jimmy Hart and he he convinces Jerry Lawler that, you know, he hates Hart right. and he'll quit wrestling if, you know, and the whole thing's just a double cross and nobody bought into this. Like this dude was so ahead of his time and he wasn't even in the business. He wasn't one of the guys. He just was there and he was just an actor and he just did an amazing friggin' job that you don't see especially now. So thank you. But let's uh, last round. There's not going to be any ties with this one. So let's just go right to TV. I'll uh, kick this one off uh, July 29th, 1982. It's still summertime. So there's no new relevant shows debuting or ending on television in July of 1982. Since I seem to never get anything from the man crush three and which of course are the movies that I grew up with, Grease, Friday the 13th, and Airplane. Uh, I decided to go with the closest thing, and I'm going all in on this one with a rerun. So in March of 1982, ABC took a chance on a show, but this is wild to me, because they announced the cancellation of this show in March after only showing four episodes of the show. And the trio of David Zucker, Jerry Zucker, and Jim Abrams, they were highly talented oh, at the time. top secret. No, well, it's a TV round. No, man. I mean, I mean um, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're close. You you know you know the lineage. So they just came off of Kentucky Fried Movie yeah. and Airplane. Yes, please, please. God damn it! What the hell? Yes, is Naked Gun. It's not Naked no. Gun, but it's on its way there. Come on! Oh God! Oh, sorry. Cop Rock. <laughs> no, that's not top rock. It's actually it's police it's police squad. Thank you. Dun, 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 yes. That's okay. right, because Naked Gun was Naked Gun from the files of police right. squad. Files of police squad. So that's one of the reasons I picked this. So this is what happened though, and that's why I wanted to give it kind of props because I don't think a lot of people even realize it was a real show because it's such a short stint. So ABC canceled this show four episodes in. They did manage to play the last two episodes that July. So you got six in total in 1982. 
But at the time, the ABC president, he said he canceled the show because the audience had to pay too close attention to the show and it demanded too much effort to which TV Guide had a rebuttal of this at the end of 1982. And they said that was the stupidest reason a television network ever gave (laughs) for the cancellation of a series. A TV Guide is right, obviously, because you never cancel a show with Leslie Nielsen. You're an idiot if you do that. Uh, but this show, like everyone's saying, it's uh, the series that focuses around Detective Frank Drebin, Captain Ed Hawken, and it would end up being a huge Hollywood success, of course. It was adapted to the silver screen in 1988 with a hugely popular The Naked Gun series. But the show, Police Squad, it only managed to have six measly episodes while the movie had two sequels. <laughs> So they had three movies and six episodes because some dipshit said, oh, people have to think too much on this show. And let me throw this out there. The three movies made $216 million at the box office. But as we know now, you got to slice that shit up. So they probably made like $14. But it was still better than the six episodes. But once again, and this comes up a lot on this show, network decisions that are just moronic. So demographics have to play in that. The ratings were probably in, but even if the ratings were a certain number, who were those ratings? Those ratings were adolescent males, probably not a lot of um, liquidity or 18 to 49 cash. These are guys that buy mad magazine. These are Zucker brother fans. Um, And I don't know, you know, that's still, you know how many people watch Silicon Valley weekly? I would think a lot. I mean, it's pretty funny ass show. A couple million, 800,000. Really? Now, the 800,000 I mean, people that watch is... a show about Menlo Park and San Francisco and Silicon Valley and startups and Google and Yahoo, those people probably work in that industry and can buy a Tesla tonight cash. So <laughs> true, 800,000 people, which 800,000 people enjoyed watching Silicon Valley? And then you can kind of market to them appropriately. And of course, there's no commercials on cable. So you put the products in the show. Characters hold them. They're in the background. They're in signs behind them. They're mentioned in dialogue. One of the things you got to think about, though, this is 1982. We had like five channels. Cable didn't really take off yet. So somebody's watching this on ABC at eight o'clock on, was it like a Friday night? You got to watch something. And then like the, one of the examples that the president threw out, which is ridiculous. It reminds me of when my, I watch my daughter watch She watches like binge watches like Vampire Diaries and shit. She has no idea what's going on because the entire time she's staring at her phone. (laughs) And one of the examples this guy gave, this president gave, said people couldn't read the newspaper while they watch television. Well, then why are you watching television if you're reading the newspaper? I mean, to me, that's ridiculous. Those new cars are going to put horses right out of business. (laughs) (laughs) But anyhow, this did end up leading to the Naked Gun series. So as we like to say on the show, it did have legs. It had legs. 1982, six years later, we got the movie and then we got the two sequels after that. But it all started uh, in 1982. But this night that I was watching, it was a rerun because they were rerunning the series. They ended it on July 8th and then on July 29th, they started all over again with episode one. So but I, th- I still think it's stupid. Like, why? Six episodes. It's a great show. It, 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 if you've never watched it, though. Go on YouTube. They have all six episodes. You can watch them all. I heard that the Coen brothers were inspired by the opening sequence for the scene where he's chasing with the Pampers and the dogs in Raising Arizona. Yeah, I could totally really? see that. 
Can you see yes, that? Yes, absolutely. I see a lot of similarities in there. Go right through the house. And the Zucker brothers were inspired to make Airplane from a bad B serial drama zero hour. And they actually bought the rights to it just so they could use the sound of the prop plane and put it over the jet engine plane just for that one joke. <laughs> they could have gotten away with even calling the movie zero hour because you can't copyright a title of a movie. But they felt they'd borrowed enough plot elements and dialogue that they said, fine, oh, look who owns it. The same studio owned it. So they just quickly got the rights to it. We had the greatest horror and comedy in the early 80s with Airplane and... Uh, Friday the 13th? Yeah, Friday the 13th and Halloween, Blazing Saddles. I mean, we had some of the most amazing young Frankenstein, great comedies and great horror. Ha ha ha. <laughs> really? I mean, Alien? Come on. Halloween, yeah. Friday the 13th. Amazing. But that's why I got. I mean, it's not it's not a glorious pick. I had to go that way for multiple reasons, not to win around, but I had to give them props. So that's what I got. Good stuff. All right, Bo Beecraft. What are your television offerings? Uh, let's see. July twenty eighth, nineteen ninety seven marks the debut of the massive hit game show. I'm talking, of course, about Comedy Central's Win Ben Stein's Money. Just a knockout. Uh show featured three contestants who competed to answer general knowledge questions. Uh, so they could win the grand prize of five grand from the show's host, which seems like a pretty minimal amount based upon the game shows that we have today, which are offering contestants like a shot at a million dollars every week. But uh, yeah, you you could win five thousand of um, Ben Stein uh, sex symbol Ben Stein's money. Uh, he also participated as a contestant in order to defend his money from being taken by competitors. Yes, it was a game show, but it actually got some accolades behind it it won six daytime emmy awards uh with stein and jimmy kimmel the show's original co-host uh sharing the outstanding game show host award in 1999 so i guess i I never really realized this but there's a disclaimer during the closing credits so prize money won by contestants was paid from like this prize budget that the producers of the show had and any money left over in that budget at the end of the season was given back to ben stein so if the total amount paid out during a season exceeded that budget the production company paid the excess so as a result stein was never really in danger of losing any of his actual (laughs) money uh but uh, you know like i said it it, it won some awards won a couple of daytime emmys and it actually spawned three international versions uh featuring prominent people from australia the uk and for some reason hungary uh but after six seasons and 715 episodes it came to an end january 31st of 2003 so a pretty Decent run for a game show on Comedy Central back then, I would think. Uh, Win Ben Stein's Money, July 28th, 1997. I don't think I ever got to watch an episode of that. I always wanted to. I never saw it. Was that on VH1 or MTV? Uh, Comedy Central. Oh, Comedy Central. Sorry, my bad. My bad. (laughs) (laughs) Or or Comedy Channel. When did they change it? Was it Comedy Channel back then or was it Comedy Central? That might have been right on the cusp, but I'm pretty sure 97 was Comedy Central. Yeah, I think it was. All right, gentlemen, we'll go over to the Orlando Sentinel, July 31st, 1979, in the television section of the newspaper here. They are previewing a new television show that is actually debuting in the summer. I was It's so rare on this show to find oh. a debut during the summer months, but I found one, but don't get too excited. This one, <laughs> called Detective School, the headline reads, A Detective School Comedy or the Case of the Missing Laughs? 
What do you get when you cross a sitcom with a detective show? Well, in the case of Detective School, which begins its four-week trial run on ABC tonight at 8.30, the result is a comedy mysteriously short on laughs. Yeah. The season, the uh, TV show only ran about 13 episodes. It was about a down-and-out detective who kind of just starts up a detective school and very haphazardly his students kind of get him into actual investigations. Uh, it was It's very reminiscent of Barney Miller. Matter of fact, the, one of the big standouts from the shows was uh, an actor from Barney Miller himself. Uh, but I think the shining moment of what we got from the 13 episodes, the legacy of Detective School, was the introduction of Taylor Negron. Taylor Negron's first TV show that he was ever on. This was before he did Fast Times at Ridgemont High. This is before he did ER and The Stoned Age, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Easy Money. This was his very first television role, movie role. This is where Taylor Negron got his start. Such a good actor, Johnny Dangerously. I absolutely loved him in Punchline. But this is where he gets his start. His character was a uh, Universal Studios tour guide who was taking detective classes who was never afraid to let you know that he once got coffee for somebody who wrote an episode of Columbo. (laughs) Still had seven more episodes in police school. (laughs) I know. Go figure. So that's what I got. July 31st, 1979. The episode was called A Bear on the House. It was the very first episode of Detective School. There was only 13 episodes. You can't even find them online, but you can find some nice commercials, but no actual episodes. So, unfortunately, I think the show might be lost. We'll see. But let's toss it over to our judge, Keith Coogan, for the final wow. ruling on this game. This is a tough one, man. I have to say, this is absolutely tough. We've got, uh, uh, well, let's cover Ben Stein's Money first, which is a great show. I probably saw about half the episodes they ever did. I love the show. Huge fan. Um, I'm Ben Stein and win my money. Um, he uh, he did. I remember reading that disclaimer disclaimer at the end of the episode, trying to figure out how you know the money came out of Ben Stein's pocket. Didn't I? You know, I know him from the the um, Clear Eyes commercials. Of course, yep. <laughs> Clear Eyes. You got he's an actual like economics teacher or something. He was a speech writer for Nixon. He's yep. a speech that that's what I said. And then uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, come on, one scene and it's, you know, that memorable. Uh, and it truly is. Um, what was the third show? The Detective, detective School or detective Police school? school? Yeah. I mean, I really love, you know, my detectives are 10 speed and brown shoe. Come on. That's a show you got to bring back. Definitely. We talked about that show a couple episodes back, oddly enough. Yep. There was a bad <laughs> show about a robot cop. Do you remember that one? And he lived in the garage, and it was it was a three camera sitcom where the cop is a robot. That sounds familiar, but I can't peg it. Now, television series and the main networks will do orders. A full season order is twenty six. A half order is thirteen. Uh, and then um, when you're not really sure, you give it a test six, and that could include the pilot. So you could have a pilot plus six episodes. It gives you about seven episodes usually on those. Oftentimes when a show has only got six, probably doesn't have a chance. And they sometimes only air two, three, four of the episodes. Right. Totally shelf them, never air them. So uh, in the case of, and I'm, I am going to go police with squad. Police Squad. Because 
uh, they didn't finish airing their original run. And when they did the second run, they added the other two episodes, I think. There was a big deal about that. It was very hard to produce that show week after week after week and keep it up. I don't think they could have gone further with it. Uh, but three hours of Police Squad and uh, the, I think all of the uh, movies are pretty funny. Each one. Oh, yeah. I think they're pretty funny. They would give you a joke in the trailer. You go, all right, that looks pretty beaver joke. Okay, I'll go see it. Deliver <laughs> on that joke. Top it over and over again. And you go, all right, this is a pretty freaking funny movie. And it had that same visual comedy, that element where there's going to be straight drama going on in the foreground, some sort of visual comedy in the background, some puns you got to keep up with. You can still watch them today and still catch stuff that you never caught before. So I'm going to give it to Police Squad, although the other picks were fantastic. And I actually want to watch them all right now. <laughs> Keith, I'll, and thank you. I, like That's my first big win in like three weeks. <laughs> so is this the new Lucky Shirt? It's the new Lucky Shirt. It's a a 2001. You got a good year. Yeah, every once in a while you get something decent. Uh, I've had a string of pretty shitty years the past couple of weeks. But we, uh, I wanted to ask you, we have a, a bunch of listener questions that they sent in. Sweet. While we were recording. Uh, let me just go through. This is on our Facebook page. So thank you, everybody that's in our private Facebook group. If you're not there yet, go to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. Go to groups. Join the 80s and 90s group. There's over 10,000 people in there. Join the 60s or 70s group. That's much smaller. It's still growing. Uh, but yeah, if you ever have these questions, we throw the people's uh, picture in there and we'll try to ask as many as we can. So go ahead and do that. Uh, let's see. The first one we got here is from Brent Hand, oh. <laughs> who is actually Brent Hand from Hysteria 51. He's on the uh, show quite often. He said, who is your favorite actor to work with? There, or who have you worked with? Who's your favorite actor? Wow. He's really putting you out there. <laughs> you want to really give, I mean, do you go Lloyd Bridges? Do you go Clue Gulliker? I did a six episode series with Clue Gulliker, uh, because of Paradise Cove. Jonathan Winters, Ro uh, Robin Williams. Do you go uh, one of the girls, Elizabeth Shue, Christina Applegate? Do you, I don't know. Um, do you go for <laughs> people like uh, Dreamlanders, people that have worked with um, John Waters or people that have worked with Andy Warhol, uh, Susan Tyrell? And, um, I, you know, it, it would be hard to pin down any one single person, I think. Um, my fondest, though. It, you know, we never officially did a project together, but during a 2020 interview, so it was kind of work, me and my grandfather were mic'd up and did a little walk on the beach. It was right when I was doing like a Chips episode or something, and it's a little short conversation. And that one time I got to work with my grandfather because I loved him very much and respected him very much. That was my favorite, but... uh um, yeah, I don't know. A I, lot of people, though. My God, like if you look at your IMDb and all the television shows as well, you you were yeah, in. David Hasselhoff was the greatest guy in the world. But did you make out with him at the top of Magic Mountain? <laughs> 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 we'll save that one for Lydia Cordell. Uh, I got to ride on a love boat. I got to uh, you know take a hot air balloon to Fantasy Island, and uh, I got to live in the Waltons' house for a year. Uh, romp in the blind school on Little House. Um, 
go to Ricky Stratton's house on Silver Spoons and visit the Seavers and date Carol. Um, I got to just play in every single TV show that was on that, you know, I did, I get it four episodes of chips. Um, eight is enough twice. Uh, um, so I love television, especially seventies and eighties television. That's my niche. That was where, you know, my parents would save TV guides if it had my name in it or something like that. Um, she still got all that old junk. And uh, I used to read TV Guide cover to cover. We'd get it on Fridays, whatever, and then I would pour over that thing um, and uh, reread it next week every morning for breakfast. And, of course, you get a TV Guide, and the first thing you do is look in the back for shows or movies that you might be in that are right, in, right. you know, with residuals are coming. It's a weird it's a weird kind of a thing. So that's yeah. not a fair question from Brent, because Brent should have looked at your IMDb first. <laughs> and Brent's on this show enough where we'll give it back to him when he's on here. But that's pretty <laughs> fucked up, Brent. So, yeah, he's I worked with a lot of people. Yeah, Sophie's choice, man. Sophie's choice. <laughs> the, all right. So this question is from uh, Rebecca Casella. You did mention her. She said, how did you enjoy working with Christina Applegate? Great. Amazing. Dream. Was a friend before doing the film. Um, through groups, circles of kids in Hollywood that had really parents really weren't watching them. And we just ran the town 15, 16 years old. They would go to this school called Excelsior. I didn't, I went to public school, but I took the test to graduate at 16. So I'm running around 16 years old with my Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme Brome diesel with T-tops, the uncoolest car on the planet. It's not uh, a and, and running around and like trying to date like Milo Jovovich and Drew Barrymore and, um hanging out at the Zappa's house and uh you know uh it, it was uh it was fun being in it there's always a bigger fish and so I'd always be eclipsed by Feldman or Haim or you know Slater or Phoenix or whoever I didn't really care I was happy with my little corner um and happy to jump from TV and finally cross over into movies um was great you know after after babysitting. Um, so, but I love TV. I love the language of TV. I love going to network. I mean, I had to hop to studio wall once with my mom and signed in on the sheet. And uh, she's like, well, you're not on the thing. Well, we'll, we'll take you in anyway. And I went to network on it. Um, so you have to have, like I say, if you don't dress up in a Catwoman suit and stalk the director from the lawn across the street from his house, <laughs> then I guess you didn't really want the part. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> It's called stalking, but uh. got to work. <laughs> so uh, that was really good. That was good. Um, yeah, that TV, they got to make it easily more accessible. And uh, there were so many throwaway shows that they didn't really make that hundred episodes. So they're not going to have box sets or DVDs. They're not even going to be on Amazon or Hulu or Netflix or Apple plus or whatever. And I think that they should do like Twitter. will do a real time moon landing and they'll tweet at the time that it really would have been like it's going live and they should just bring flashback weeks and literally something that is playing everything that was on that week. Good, bad, yep. you know, throw it in there. News reports, everything commercials, just so that we can get kind of context. I love video channels. That's why we love doing this. Yeah. I love video channels on YouTube that have hours of like MTV with the commercials and everything. Yeah. We've, we've talked about that so many times on this show. I mean, that's just, just, that's kind of what we try to create here for the audience is just that just relive the moment, especially when we do episodes like this, when it's the week experience and you're picking stuff that's, you know, within a week and it's very granular, you really get a snapshot of what that period of time was like. And we started doing that every night on our Facebook page at eight o'clock. You could see what was on TV, whatever 
date. Like tonight we did uh, July 30th, 1998. And it's a rundown of everything that was on at eight o'clock and to go, you know, pick what you would watch. And people seem to love that stuff, but let's move on to this question. This is a weird one. Uh, Vicky Skobek. She said, did you ever go to the buffet at circus circus back around 1988? I swear I saw you there. I was a kid. It looked just like him. Possibly, although I couldn't drink. I think you could be on the gambling floor at 18. I don't remember. I wasn't 21 until 91. So, but it's possible. And I was totally into Bob Stupak's gaming world and um, (laughs) Vegas world and Circus Circus. I love that area of the valleys, that whole dead end of the strip. Um, so it's possible, it's highly, highly possible in 88. I was there. Yes. Yes. That's a great question. Uh, let's see. We got Richard, uh, McGregor Nash. He said, Hey Keith, in all of your movies, what part was always your favorite? Well, uh, that's a different question than I usually get. Some of what's your favorite movie. The other one's what's your favorite movie to work on. Those are two different things. And now this question is what part was what always part your favorite was my favorite. I don't know if that means what role or what. Yeah, part no. Your- and I think embodying embodying Kenny to play such a selfish, completely did not care about the family, self-serving openly. You mean you <laughs> got to bribe your friends? Yeah. It's just the way that it is. He's very pragmatic. Oh shit, mom's leaving town. All right, I see yeah. you, rock and roll. <laughs> you know, love him. Um, and uh, and I tend, I love to black out, and I love to also steal scenes. And so, uh, like toy soldiers. I first day of shooting, I go to Will Wheaton. Like one of the first things <laughs> after we did the cellar scene, which by the way, the voice of the sex scene. You know, the sex scene in Toy Soldiers. Oh yeah, of course, phone. yeah. Okay, the actress was there on set in a van just outside of the boiler. <laughs> And the actress was the wife of John G. Avildsen, director of Karate Kid and Rocky. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Uh, that's the second time he's come up on this. Because yes. when we had uh, Sean Kanan on, who was in Karate Kid 3, they were yep. the, he was the director for that. That's funny. That scene cracks me up, man. And I did a film with Sean called Limelight. And he, he plays a greedy agent, and I play rapey manager and oh we're yeah we have fun we have a lot of scenes together <laughs> the best part about that scene is like i forgot who's talking they're like yeah and i'm black and she's like oh what kind of hair do you have and he's like it's blonde and she's like oh, <laughs> i love long blonde hair on a black man <laughs> <laughs> <It's so funny>. <laughs> <laughs> all right this one looks a little bit more in depth this is from a uh, loyal listener brian moreno he said uh do you know any other programming other than Java since you majored in Java programming? Fox and the Hound was my favorite movie as a kid. Can I get a shout out like Diane Franklin did? <laughs> uh, shout out. Absolutely. We'll always be friends forever, won't we? Well, Fox and the Hound quote in there. And uh, no, I never officially learned another language, although actually I did. I learned... Um, DLS. Uh, it was a. I worked for a lot of phone rooms and call centers, and I I I sold call centers. That was I did sales for years, and then eventually moved up to actually selling the call center itself, inbound, outbound, mostly inbound, emergency, fire, rescue, Port of Los Angeles, 
government stuff, um, sheriff suicide hotline, uh, some pretty serious stuff. Um, anyway, moving on. He, he went digging deep. Uh, this one's from Mike Ranger. So, you know, it's going to be good. He said, uh, how does one know exactly when the dishes are done, man? When there's, when there's none left. (laughs) (laughs) You dumb bastard. How do you not know that? (laughs) When there's none left. Yes. Uh, I think that's it. I never really considered that. It's Kenny. Don't know. Grateful. That line was in the trailer. Like, like I said, (laughs) you know, that was one. It was right at the end of that trailer that they just played to death that summer. And, um, and what are these movies doing with teenagers releasing them in July summer releases it just wouldn't happen today you're not going to see a smaller budgeted you know movie like that um go up against you know the big summer pictures so that was uh we were we were lucky we got we we did not lose money on any of these movies well book of love book of love lost money as a matter of fact uh bob shea chairman of new line cinema would have an annual party with the cast and crew and and producers like rachel talalay was one of the producers on that and he would announce how much Book of Love has lost New Line Cinema at these parties. Because <laughs> we're at one and a half million. All right, drink up. <laughs> That's great. Uh, let's see. Zachary McAllister said, uh, thanks for being part of Fox and the Hound. The one Disney movie to make me cry as a kid. Damn you. <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Of course, you know who the voice of the Hound was. I, I've never. Keith. When I grew up, you heard the Man Crush Three before that I was I was talking about. My parents let me watch like Friday Thirteenth when I was like six, so my cartoon days were very limited, and I never watched them like ever. So it, I have a very small recollection. Yeah, of see, I, I'm always harping on this. See, and this is something you would love because once you find out who it is, <laughs> because the Hound was played by none other than the star of Halloween Four, the final chapter. Little is it Ricky Jarvis? Oh, you're talking about uh Friday thirteenth yeah, 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 Ricky. Friday thirteenth Tommy Jarvis. Friday thirteenth. Tommy, Tommy Jarvis. Jarvis, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tommy Jarvis played the hound in the Fox and the Hound. Corey Feldman. So yep. Oh man, yeah, I, I still wouldn't watch it because I just M- Mickey yeah, Rooney, Kurt Russell. Come on, Pat Buster, I see the Pearl names Bailey. all the time. They look great, but like I just can't get into cartoons. I blame my parents. It's just still going to make you cry. It. You watch it now as an adult, you will cry on Fox and the Hound. How long before that one gets the live action treatment? Never. <laughs> When's the 30 years up? 34, yeah. 35 years? Oh, come on. <laughs> That'd be digging pretty deep. But see, that's the thing about that movie. You know, Corey Feldman plays the young copper. And of course, Kurt Russell plays the older version of the same character. The older version of your character, you get Mickey Rooney. I get Mickey Rooney. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It's, I think it's, a it's sadly a great cast. Though. They both, my grandfather and him were both under contract with MGM. They both went to the same school on, the, on that lot together. Yep. I think it's perfect. I think I'm more related to Mickey Rooney than almost anything. That's yeah. just perfect. I, I went to the theaters to see the Fox and the Hound on its original release. I remember seeing that it was a double feature with Winnie the Pooh. Nice. Uh, we were really grateful that they re-released it like seven years later. It made more money again. And then they uh, put it as the last in the original Black Diamond label, Big Puffy VHS uh, collection. So I was really happy it was considered in that kind of classic collection. And it was the, it had everybody on it. The original 
seven wise men that had done Pinocchio and Snow White, and these new guys, uh, Brad Bird, Ron Clemens, right. Don Bluth, and some background artist, uh, Tim Burton. Um, it had so many great animators. Oh, John Lasseter. Yeah, just these kinds of names. Um, so it was really a handoff of the old animators to the new animators. It went wildly over budget because Don Bluth left production. And Fox and the Hound cost, it was the most expensive animated film at the time. It cost $10 million <laughs> for this. <laughs> and then it made, like drop probably the made $46 million at the box office, and Disney was very happy. And it's sad. It'll get you as an adult. It'll get you coming. It'll get you going. There's two guaranteed cry spots in the film. Is the, Are there any animals that die in the movie? I, that's what I'm feeling. It's a Disney movie. Oh, yeah. See, I can't handle that. <laughs> the mother dies in the first 10 seconds. Yeah. I, think. The, yeah. I don't like, like people could die all day when they kill animals. That's like, come on. Like, why do we got to do that? Like, I feel like there needs to be a live stream of you watching this movie for the first time. <laughs> oh my God. That would be great. That it, it could happen. Fox, they have, they're like, like, look, the cute baby fox. Now, wait, the, the hound grew up and his dad's a hunter. Now they're hunting. The no, don't tell me. Don't tell no, me. We're going to do this. Like, What's going on here? Uh, that would be good. That, people would be screaming. I'm going to do this with Mike Ranger. We have a studio that we're opening up uh, because of COVID. We've been locked out of there for four months and we just got to finish it. I was actually supposed to record there tonight, but I was running late. So now I'm in my basement. But uh, let me ask. I got two more questions from uh, Tommy Combs. Another uh, great listener. He says, Does, do you have any cool memorabilia from the Adams family or little rascals? Um, the Adams family, we had uh, two thing boxes, which are little coffin shaped boxes where the yeah. hand would come out. They got a hole in the bottom. Uh, my grandmother put them up to a Christie's auction. They got maybe four, seven grand or something a piece for them. Um, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, little rascals. Oh, uh, so Jackie Cooper was a great star of Little Rascals. Um, my grandfather was a little bit older and was not involved in the Little Rascals in any way, shape, or form. Okay, well, there you but go. But I love both Arguing and Little Rascals. The reason that they have Arguing and Little Rascals is because one of the producing partners left um, the Culver lot, or left the lot where they were doing um, the Little Rascals, started his own and um, named it Argan. So they're two different production companies competing with basically the same storylines. And that's why, and they'll swap actors back and forth. And then finally they got back and they put it under one banner again so that we can enjoy them on. Huh. And they're heavily edited. The ones that we grew up watching are already heavily edited um, because times had changed. You think they're going back and trying to look at movies like Song of the South now? Yeah. Look at some of the, even the stuff they left in Little Rascals, you're like, oh my yeah. God. <laughs> We just talked about Song of the South like three weeks ago, I think. Was that the pick that you had on the worst no, of episode? No, that was uh, Treasure of the Matacumbe, which has the Ku Klux Klan okay, right, rally well, in still, it. Yeah, still <laughs> yeah. bad. Still bad. All right, last question I got from uh, listeners here. This is from, uh, God, I'm blind. Cheston Greenwood? I think it says Cheston. Cheston? We'll go with that. It says, uh, which, did, which did you enjoy most? Adventures in babysitting, or this is a tough question when they ask this, but uh, wh which one did you enjoy most? Uh, Adventures in babysitting, or don't tell mom the babysitter's dead? Um, two totally different times of my life, 
One, I'm 16, turning 17, grossly in love with Elizabeth Shue. And on my own, since I've taken this California high school proficiency examination, it allows me to work as an adult in Hollywood, which is a really big deal. Then you don't need the tutor on set or the hours of schooling, which take you away off set. So I can get more close-ups and kind of ham it up more. Um, so Maya Bruton and Anthony Rapp had to do schooling on set. I didn't, and I didn't need a guardian. So here I am, 16, flying off to Toronto for two months and then Chicago for a couple of weeks and then finally back to LA to do this movie. And it was just, it was a great adventure. It was, you know, huge rolling thunder trucks and lights and, you know, Disney money, um, Touchstone Pictures. Did you know that Touchstone Pictures was funded by Silver Screen Partners 3? And they released stuff like Stakeout and Outrageous Fortune and Splash. Um, Silver Screen Partners 3 is in the Guinness Book of World Records, the most profitable film investment company in the history of the entertainment industry. It was a 600% return on your money. Damn. If you invested a million dollars in Silver Screen Partners 3, your return would be $6 million. Um, and that's because they would do movies for $8 million, make $30 million at the box office, rinse and repeat. That's like bizarro yeah. canon. That's like the exact opposite <laughs> of what canon did. <laughs> well, they were doing it for a while, and then 1987 hit, and yeah. they were like, let's just dump all this money into Sylvester It's like canon made movies you can watch while you're drunk on Doers. True. This True. is important. <laughs> Everything has a price. Canon made really good, soul-searching, 3 o'clock in the morning. What's on? Oh, the Chuck Norris movie. This one's pretty good, actually. <laughs> Death Wish 5. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean... Th and then, don't tell mom, I'm... We're, you know, eight movies into my mainstream movie career, I think. So I've worked for most of the studios at this point now at Warner Brothers and was just about to go do Toy Soldiers after that. So in here, I'm, like, entrusted in a character that's so far from me Brad and eventually babysitting, nervous, geeky, you know, teenager. Got it. Kenny, I don't know. It was another world. It was a complete, like, let's create this thing and see if I can do it and see if people buy it. Or, you know, I got, it was on, I was very proud. A couple of years ago, I saw, spotted me on a list of the five worst movie stoners in film history. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. That was what I was afraid of, was falling on my face. There's little touches in that that people have noticed that, I appreciate that they noticed them. You know, they were something, an idea I'd come up with on set to kind of bring Kenny to life. Um, I felt way more in, um, although in Invention of Babysitting, we had two weeks of rehearsal and we put it on its feet and improvised and would, 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 you know, write down all of the great lines that people were coming up with. Like, could you drop us off at a mall? <laughs> um, I got to know mall. No way. <laughs> what do you think we have? Boise, Idaho. Um, <laughs> That a lot of these lines came from the rehearsal process. In Don't Tell Mom, it everyone would just bring so much to every day. They'd already have all their kind of bit and business worked out. We're all in the same universe. We're like kind of already talking on the same heightened reality. You know, it's a it's kind of a broad, fun comedy. Um, it doesn't have to take itself too seriously. Uh, oh, and I, I had so much fun doing Kenny, uh, uh, performing it. The only other set I was on that I liked more was Cousins because Joel Schumacher and that cast was pretty amazing. But um, I'm going to go with Don't Tell Mom, because I was a little older, felt I was new, knew what I was doing, took a big risk. And um, from the feedback, I guess uh, it resonated with people and, and paid off. Now, Elizabeth Shue, is she a big back and black fan as well? <laughs> <laughs> 
I see what you did there. I didn't. I don't know. 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 Wow. I do not know. Couldn't tell you. You know what's great about Don't Tell Mom? I I just watched it again last week, and like the whole movie is great. And then the the ending comes where you, the fashion show, and you guys, it's the one part where what's her name Nicole? It's like kind of like your love interest. Nicole. She comes on to do her bit, and they play the music, and it's the most cringeworthy dance that she does on the stage. <laughs> that I'm just like, ah, stop! <laughs> like and I was just like, why did they? Do now that, that you've said that in our Facebook group, someone's gonna make a gif of that Nicole <laughs> dance, and it's just gonna be on an endless loop now. Thanks. <laughs> it's your new cover photo for the group. I still love. Thank you, Katrina. <laughs> Thank you, Katrina. <laughs> it's just one of those things when you're watching movies. Let me ask you this question before you go, because I, you get all the easy ones all the time. We asked Diane Franklin this, and she didn't really have a hard time finding it. Was it like two weeks ago? Out of all your roles, you've done a, you've done a shit ton of stuff. What was the one role that afterwards you were just like, ah, I didn't like it? Oh, uh, easy. Uh, forever. A ghost of a love story. Um, co-starring Sally Kirkland, Sean Young, um, it, uh, Steve Railsback, Diane Ladd. Wow. Uh, it is an awful uh, film, but um, it, it was difficult to make. We shot it in like 18 days. Uh, it, it was the one that I learned never do a project just for the money. So I learned my lesson on that. And it was good money. Thank you, guys. Um, it was, uh, it's horrible. We watched it on some street on Amazon prime or whatever the other day. And I just was like, wow, I saw all these kind of missed opportunities of not really getting on top of it, kind of letting the situation eat me alive. Um, and so I would love to go back and try again, but I learned my lesson from it. I, I also had a period where, uh, my films were cursed. People were passing away on me. Every time I did a movie or got another movie, someone would die either in the no cast kidding. or in my personal life on the set of don't tell mom. I get a call from the production office. I leave the house. I go up to the office and it's all in a real location house. And they tell me my uncle just passed away in a terrible motorcycle accident. And then we lose Christopher Pettit who played Zach um, dies a couple of years after making the film. We do toy soldiers and we lose Sean Phelan who played yogurt and that, and this, this point I'm starting to feel that there's kind of a curse there's kind of a good, bad thing in Hollywood where you win an Oscar. Oh, but your husband cheated on you. Sandra Bullock. Or, you know, uh, oh, great. You you know got this big movie deal. And then your wife get cancer. It's just there's always an up, down, up, down. And maybe it's just because right. fame brings focus into somebody's life. And everybody's life has a little bit of both. But forever it was tough. I had a dear friend die. He was 23. He decided to get his life together. Quit drinking. Quit smoking weed. And start running winds up he had a congenital heart defect and dropped dead running on the jogging path and uh so that was tough tough space in my life and it went from a friday dinner where and i love you Corey, but feldman had dropped out of the project so they said will you jump in and do it we start shooting monday and they wind and dine me friday night and i said sure i'll do it and i think this is and i've gone up with Corey and will and sean get everything i was up for goonies and gremlins and et and christmas story and stand by me i i even read for say anything 16 candles um lord of the rings we all kind of get the parts that we get uh which yeah. is funny you should see this at uh autograph conventions we're all 
that movie. I wish I was in that one. No, I'll, you know, I'll, I wish I was in that one. Great. <laughs> was there anything that you just missed out on? Like, I know, like, years ago, we had William Cat on, and he missed out on being Luke Skywalker. Sure. You know, was there anything like that? that uh... Sure. It was down to me and a few other kids for um, some movie that wasn't really clear on the script. It was called A Boy's Life. And, but this director was pretty hot. Um, and, uh, and it was ET and, uh, it was at Amblin and the audition was in this conference room at Amblin had video games stacked around the wall. And I'm a video game nut and they had a uh, battle zone and I got on that battle zone machine and I'm like, this is the greatest thing. Oh my God. Free credits. And Spielberg said, come on, let's read the scene. And I'm like, hold on. And I'm like playing battle zone. <laughs> That's it. Didn't matter how I read it. It was a test and I read an interview. I was Henry Thomas or it was a Spielberg where he said he put those games there on purpose to see which child had the focus to stay on task and stay on the work. And I didn't, I loved being on set every day on set was fun for me. So doing dramas and crying and stuff as a kid was like, why am I doing something that feels uncomfortable on such a fun thing? So I tend right. to do a lot of fun comedies and stuff. And if I couldn't cry, they'd bring out the glycerin and just paint though on my face. <laughs> Yeah, I think you you cried in Toy Soldiers, didn't you? After no, uh, no, no, Billy Sean Astin cried. He's oh, an okay. actual talented actor. <laughs> Sean is is up there with the um, you know River Phoenixes and and Corey Hames and stuff that have an actual gift and an emotional connection to human beings. I'm a complete complete sociopath, so I just fake it. <laughs> acting, I've never felt anything that I've ever done acting. Sorry, it's just the truth. Oh, that's good, man. <laughs> you don't get that often. I love it. My great grandparents were both in vaudeville. My grandfather was, you know, the kid and Uncle Fester. Uh, my mom even wrote and did stand up comedy. And um, here I am. And I just did, uh, you know, commercials to TV, to movies, to YouTube, which brings us to the quarantine bunch on YouTube. Hey, YouTube's good. Well, since you said that, plug all your shit. Uh, shot it in <laughs> quarantine. It, uh, so former child stars have a secret society. <laughs> Ex-child actors secret society. And we have meetings and we, we party at each other's houses and we talk and we commiserate and tell war stories and help each other out. Now, because of quarantine, we can't do these meetings in person. So we take our meetings online onto Zoom. And this series is a chance for you to tune in and crash those meetings as they're taken over by my stalker fan, Debbie from Tarzana. <laughs> co-starring scotty schwartz from a christmas story and the toy and kid co jeremy miller from growing pains danny pintaro from who's the boss judy norton from the waltons and dean mcdermott from scotty makes five he was not a child actor but we made up one and gave him a scottish accent for the show <laughs> fantastic man that is freaking and awesome. that's a great idea when you brought up the kaufman bit i was just talking about kaufman because i was talking about the quarantine bunch the quarantine bunch is more akin to too many cooks the vh1 23 minute promo that aired at two o'clock in the morning one night and drove everybody absolutely nuts um it is anti-humor it's not what you expect please give it a try the darker and twisteder you are, the more you will appreciate it. So it's an actual Zoom call that you allow people to come into? No, no, oh, no. Okay. We, we shot you guys six episode web series. <laughs> it's completely fake, but um, it's hysterical. That would be freaking hilarious, too, if you guys did it and had open Zoom where oh, just people geez. just joined. That would be crazy. Holy, that's gold. That'd be real horror. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Zoom horror. 
But anything else you got going on, man, that you want to plug? We got to get you back, dude. You're an awesome judge. You know a lot of shit. And I think, like like I said, you didn't know the game coming in, but you got it right away. You figured everything out, and you're a smart guy. You knew all the stuff we were talking about. Love having you on. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, man. I'm still at it. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for 40. How old am I? Oh, yeah, 44 years I've been doing this, and I never lost my union status. I've always had an agent and uh, still go out for stuff. I just went out for um, some Ford Ferrari movie. Uh, got to go out for this other Brad Pitt movie that's coming out. And um, and so I get these opportunities and I'll get it. I'll nail the thing that, you know, it's supposed to be. My biggest disappointment was not getting in Hollywood uh, because um, they did a story on um, the kid that played Huck Finn with my grandfather. And apparently there is a story on Junior Durkin within Hollywood. And I was like, you know, it's, it's upsetting, you know, the legacy of Jackie Coogan. I'd love to continue that. Coincidentally, my grandfather was 50 when he played Uncle Fester in 1964. I'm 50 as of this year. So I'm the same age as my grandfather when he played Uncle Fester. So I don't know why they're calling Nick Kroll or anything like that. Call some Coogan. I'll do faster. <laughs> Hell yeah. That would be awesome. Morticia, shoot him in the back. <laughs> Let's start a hashtag. <laughs> so Coogan for Fester 2020. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's start this up. Hashtag Coogan for Hester. With Something the number. Number four can Hester. get around. Everybody can get behind this. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Make me shave my head and eyebrows and put on 20 pounds. <laughs> Make me do it. I'll do it. You can do anything in Hollywood. Um, yeah, watch oh our new YouTube channel, uh, Keith and Pinky's Hollywood Tales. My wife likes to get selfies with celebrities. She has pictures with over 5,000 people, including Brad Pitt, Van Affleck, Leo, Matt Damon, name it. She's got them. Um, and she's asked him, hey, can I get a photo with you? So uh, we do, you know, go into Sundance, autograph conventions, Emmy events, uh, where I'm just slowly building the channel and loading some weird stuff on there. Um, we have a weird life where I'm on this side of the rope. She'd been on that side of the rope. We came together. Actually, I met her at, our, at my first autograph convention. She was not a fan of me. She was there to get Jeremy Miller. Um, but uh, we really had fun doing this and like blurring that line between being a fan. Because I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of movies and TV. And But I also do them. Um, and so I'm pulling her on this side and showing how the sausage is made. It's not pretty. And I don't think she wants to know. But um, it's it's uh, so it's that's fun quarantine bunch and um a couple of things streaming and stuff new whatever i don't know just type coogan keith coogan into whatever and your cameo just go to cameo.com and just search cameo i love them love doing cameos and at my website keithcooganonline.com i do sell autographs and all that stuff but i also sell the dishes so you can get a signed dish the dishes are done man kenny keith coogan is kenny and uh do those and um what else and uh be safe everybody lockdown hope we get the unemployment continued that would be great um i finally just started getting it it was months to get it in california for me as an actor because i tell them my last employer was warner brothers for a five dollar residual check and it doesn't really wash with the employment system (laughs) but i had a straight job as a tour guide at sony and of course deserved so it took a while to work it out and everyone was to help at unemployment but I frankly want to get back on the lot. I miss standing on the same lot that my grandfather made movies on. We have a street a few blocks away from Sony Studios named Coogan Circle. Uh, to be able to stand there and tell people 
stories of my grandfather and of Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland and Cary Grant and Myrna Loy and Greta Garbo. Um, that to me, I love doing that every single day. And I do that Monday through Friday, nine to five, whenever I can. Only if I'm doing an autograph convention, have an audition or being pulled. Other than that, I love just being on the lot. So I want everything to open up so I can get back to work. My wife is an Imagineer at Disney. She's been furloughed. I'd like her to get back to work too. We just love our jobs, really. That's awesome. So it's not even like you're working. You're just getting paid to do shit you like. Yeah, I've got to have enough work (laughs) from 76 till now for residuals. Um, It's great. Uh, it's cumulative. It's not like I did any really big, I have a friend who had four lines in Apollo 13 and he gets $13,000 checks for residuals. I get nowhere near anything like that, but I did a lot of shows. So they all add up and they roll them. So all of my Disney stuff will be on one check. All my Warner brothers stuff will be on one check universal, et cetera. Um, and that's nice. It's nice to have that. And with, I, I consider that a great luxury and I don't want to squander that. Um, so yeah, just always hustle on the side and go to go to autograph. I love being able to uh, meet the fans and meet other stars and stuff at those autograph conventions too. Um, and I want those to open up. People are dying for it. Hopefully in uh, late yeah, August, I'll be coming to Oklahoma City if that con goes on. And then in, I think October, maybe Jersey. I don't know. Maybe that show was pushed to next year. So a lot of those are pushed, but I can't wait to get back out there and see the fans as well. Well, next time you come back out east, if you're coming to Jersey or whatever, let me know. Yeah, we're going to go to Atlantic City. I think they moved the show to February. I don't know. Yeah, I don't even know. Everything's closed down here, so who the freak knows. But thanks, man. I really appreciate you coming on, and we got to get you back. You were great. Thanks, man. It was fun to have you on. Good stuff. You guys have great takes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, bro. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks. You too, man. Thanks. Have a good night. You too. All right, Doolers. Well, I guess we'll end this episode right here. But if you've missed an episode, you can always head back over to DuelingDecades.com where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. And while you're on the interwebs, as Man Crush said earlier, head on over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades where you can join the group of over 10,000 other duelers and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.